Let's take a moment and and pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that this is your word. That for all the mistakes and failures that I will make up here, that you promise your word will go forth. That it will have its intended effect. That it will grow us in sanctification and godliness. And so, God, I just want to leave all of that there. All of my fears, all of my worries, all of my nervousness, all of my hopes. I want to leave them in your hands and ask you and your Holy Spirit to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, a Babylonian flood narrative, Utnapishtim, no clue if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, I got through the word, so that's what matters. The human hero of this story is warned of an impending flood. And he's warned by a friendly god. So Utnapishtim builds an ark to escape the flood. The gods want to destroy humanity because of overpopulation. And once the gods unleash the flood, they cannot control it. And they almost starve. As the flood ends, Utnapishtim offers a sacrifice which the gods eat, restoring their health. And so, the gods decide to allow humanity to live. And this story has a lot of similarities to the biblical flood narrative. And yet, it presents a vastly different picture of God and of humanity. In the biblical account, there are not many gods. There's one God. Creation is never beyond his control. And he is never dependent on humanity. The flood is not about overpopulation, but it is God's curse upon a sinful humanity. And when redemption does come, when it does finally come to Noah, it is an act of grace based on God's covenant promises. So as we examine this story, I want to look at it through three main plot points that I think unfold for us. The fall, redemption, and new creation. This story is familiar to most of us, so I'm not going to spend too much time contextualizing it. But I do think it's important to recognize how we ended up here. So at Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. And from chapter 4 to the beginning of chapter 6, it's one big spiral downward for humanity as they go deeper and deeper into the depravity and into sin and rebellion against God. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 6. And I know that as we come to this story, we live in a world of science. And that means that there are questions about this flood. How does the biblical narrative fit with science. And I would love to be able to unpack all of that for you today. I simply don't have the time. So what I would invite you to do is to talk to Pat, talk to one of the elders here, talk to me, and ask those questions. They're worthy of our time. They're worthy of discussion. The other thing that I would recommend is a resource that's free online. It's a book called Redeeming Science by Vern Poitras. And you can go through that, and he's going to navigate the biblical narrative and science and give you several different options of how these two can cohere as opposed to be in opposition to one another. With that, we come to the first point, the fall. And we see it 
almost immediately in chapter 6. In verse 2, actually. Verse 2 brings us this echo of the fall that occurs in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. You see, as Eve saw the fruit, so the sons of God saw the daughters of man. As Eve saw that the tree was good, so the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This word attractive and good is the same Hebrew word. And finally, as Eve takes the fruit, so the sons of God take wives. We see very quickly that things are not as they should be. This is the fall 2.0. What is going on here exactly? Who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? Those are all great questions. And Pat has a definitive answer on all of those things. So get him after church and he'll tell you. Um, I'm going to try to steer clear of some of that. But I'm going to have to deal with it a little bit. But I think one of the things that we can see right away is that these are not really sons of God. They're not acting like sons of God. They're actually acting like sons of Adam, following in his footsteps. And when we look at Nephilim, there's questions there of who are they, but we're told that they are men of renown. Whatever they are, at the end of the day, they're still human. And so I think part of what we can say is going on here is that within Mesopotamian culture, the kings would claim to be sons of God. And we know something similar. If you look at Greco-Roman culture, if you read the Iliad, you know that Achilles was supposed to be the descendant of one of the gods in Greco-Roman culture. And so the Mesopotamians were doing something similar. Their kings were claiming to be descendants of the gods. And their list of kings actually give long life to these, to these kings, some going as far as 25,000 years. And so what God is doing is he's demythologizing the kings of Mesopotamia. He's reducing them to a footnote in his history. And there's some application that we can draw from this. The first thing I want to point to is that the sons of God take wives. This does not mean that they just took a wife. It is probably a reference to the formation of a harem. They are taking God's creational purposes in marriage and distorting it. And one thing that we can see right away is that godly sexuality has almost always been the minority position. Long before the 1960s or the internet and pornography, long before questions about LGBTQ plus community were before us, godly sexuality was already uh, being attacked, being becoming the minority. The second thing that we see is that these were men of renown. These Nephilim were men of renown. They were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to build their own legacy. We see that today. People are building up their name through business, through wealth, through politics, through gaining followers on social media by saying the most controversial or contrarian thing they can think of. But here's the reality. None of those things matter in God's sight. What God does is reject two myths that are, that are a constant in our culture. 
The first is the myth of progress. We see here that history spirals down as humanity continues deeper into its sin. And any time that humanity relies on itself to build its own name, there is no progress to be made. We are spinning our wills in mud and stuck. The second myth that this rejects is a myth of meritocracy. We live in a culture that is concerned with building up ourselves. But God rejects that myth right here. He reminds us that no matter what we do in this life, there are only two fountainheads of humanity that we can belong to. We will either be sons of Adam or we, we will be sons of God through Jesus Christ. And as we step back and look at this passage and we see these kings doing all of these sins, we might be tempted to see human sin as simply a social pathology. If we had better leaders, we could fix the systemic issues. We could fix the cosmic nature of sin. But God also reminds us that sin cuts across every human heart. It is a spiritual pathology. The reformers called this total depravity. And we see this in verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. That word heart, when we hear it, we often think of our passions or our emotions. But that's not the case in Hebraic thought. In Hebrew, the heart was our deepest being. It was who we were at our most basic core. And this is a great opportunity to uh, draw something for your children here. You could take a heart with a compass inside of it. And an arrow pointing on that compass with God represented by a theta at the top and a snake or serpent at the bottom. And our heart is going to be oriented one of those two ways. And the natural inclination of our heart is always toward the serpent, always toward sin. And this word here, intention, the intention of the thoughts, this echoes Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God formed the man from the dust. The same word used here again, even though translated differently. And this means that our designed capacities that God put in us, our will, our passions, our intellect, that were meant to image God become distorted by the fall so that they are now used for evil. There's a book I read a few years back called Ethan Frome. And in, in that book, we meet Ethan Frome, who is a rural farmer. And he wants more from life, but he is in a loveless, unhappy marriage. His wife is sick, and he is caring for her, barely scraping by. And his wife's cousin, Maddie, comes to care for her. And when Ethan meets Maddie, he sees everything that he aspires to in life. She is pretty and carefree. And it becomes clear that Maddie is not good at taking care of Ethan's wife. And so Ethan becomes fearful that she will be sent away. And so he wakes up one morning, gets out of bed, goes downstairs, and he begins to help Maddie set a fire and to go about her chores. And as he does this, he leaves all of his chores for the day to be done later. And he knows he's taking on more than he can. And by the time we come to the end of the book, Maddie and Ethan have decided that 
They do not want to live in a world where they cannot be together. But that moment at the end begins toward the middle when Ethan gets up to help Maddie with chores. It's not just an act of kindness. It is a subtle orientation of his heart away from his wife, away from what he was supposed to be oriented toward. And the point of application for us is simply this. We often see the way sin breaks out in its final form and we say, I don't want that. But the reality is, is that sin is subtly in our heart, orienting us away from God. And we need to be in prayer and scripture and in community with one another so that we can recognize the way sin is distorting our own orientation of our hearts because it is so subtle. We will not see it until it is far, far too late. And if we left things there, what a miserable, sad state we would be in. But God does not leave us there. And that brings us to our second point, redemption. In verse 8 of chapter 6, we are told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this word for favor is the Hebrew word for grace. Alan P. Ross uh, puts it this way. No one escapes divine judgment apart from grace. You see, Noah and his family weren't different than the people that they lived among. They were condemned just like them. It was grace that made the difference. And I know that Genesis chapter 7 verse 1, which we didn't read, refers to Noah as righteous. But we have to remember the order of the story is important. The grace comes before the calling of Noah being righteous. In chapter, in, that, in chapter 7 verse 1, Noah goes into the ark. He has already built the ark. And this is when God calls him righteous. It is the fruit of of God's grace that leads to the obedience of building the ark that ends up with Noah being called righteous in his generation. Grace always precedes the fruit of obedience. The second way that we see grace at work in this story is that Noah points us to Christ. And this is another great point that you can apply to your children and show them. Noah points us to Christ in three different ways. The first is that as Christ undergoes the cross and the judgment of God, so Noah undergoes the flood and experiences that judgment. As Noah called uh, people to come into the ark and to experience God's salvation, so Christ called to the people and calls to us, come, taste, and see that I am good. And the third way is that as Christ truly was righteous, so Noah here is called righteous. Once again, recognizing that that righteousness is dependent on God's grace. But yet, he is pointing us to the truly righteous one, Christ himself. But what about us? What does this mean for us? Well, here's the good news for us. Not only does Noah point us to Christ, but we, now, living here, are connected to Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, Paul is on his way to persecute the church on the road to Damascus. And Christ appears to him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? It's not what he says. Why are you persecuting 
me. Christ identifies with his church to, in such a way that to persecute the church is to persecute Christ. We are connected to Christ. What does that mean for us? It means that your story, your experiences are caught up into Christ's story so that your parenting, your career, your singleness, all of those broken family relationships and pain and suffering and abuse are caught up into God's redemptive story. And that redemptive story is not only for you, but it is for the benefit of people beyond the doors of the church. Hear me when I say you can look beyond your suffering to Christ on the cross and realize your suffering does not mean that God does not love you. Because it did not mean that God did not love Christ when he was crucified. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, we also see the mark of God's grace. And I want to focus on two words in that verse. First word is but. Such a simple, small word. But it is a word of contrast, of contrasting. It contrasts everything that occurred in the story before, the flood, God's judgment upon the earth, and what comes after. It is the hinge on which this entire story turns. And what we see here is that God's judgment and God's redemption, they go together. To speak of one immediately entails thinking of the other. In our mind, they are so often competing concepts. But in God's economy, in God's salvific economy, they are interdependent concepts. The second word, remember. I remember things. I, re- I can think back to the birth of my children. I can think back to the times we've been in the park playing and the laughter. I can think back to my wedding day. But when God remembers, He's not just recalling something. For God to remember indicates movement toward the object. He is moving toward us as He remembers. And what this means for us is simply this. Redemption is not our action. That means that your parenting, your job, your family, your wealth, those good grades in school, they can't save you. They won't save you. You can succeed in every area of your life and not know God. You can fail in every area of your life and you can know God. This is not a meritocracy. This is a place that is different than the world. And here is the good news from that. If your successes cannot save you, then your failures cannot damn you. The ark was a sanctuary. It was a place where the animals and humanity were put to be protected from God's judgment. As a sanctuary, it acted as a form of new creation, experiencing 
and passing through God's judgment safely. And so what that means for us as we sit here masked in the midst of an ongoing pandemic that seems to never end. As we see the curse act upon the world in multitudinous ways. It means that God remembers us. And he gathers us into his protection. And into his sanctuary. Formed through us by Jesus Christ. Dr. Dane Ortland used this illustration to, 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 to show how the new creation exists in our current world. Imagine that you are on the shore of a beach and there's a child that gets caught in the undertow of the water and he's pulled out into the water and he begins to drown and you seeing this immediately begin to run toward that child. And you pull the child out and he coughs up water and he stands on the shore now safe, still soaking wet and shivering from the water, still experiencing the after effects of almost drowning. And there is a way in which that child was saved as soon as you moved toward the water. And the same remains true for us. We experience the after effects of the fall. But God is restoring creation. And that brings us to our third point. New creation. In verse 9, God tells us, I establish my covenant. Restoration and hope for creation does not rest on the work of humanity. It does not rest upon moral improvement, but it rests on God's unilateral promise. One of my favorite quotes as I was studying for this um, is this quote right here. It, it says, underlying the history of nature and the history of mankind is an unconditional divine yes. A divine yes to all of life that cannot be shattered either by any catastrophes in the course of this history or by the mistakes, corruption, or rebellion of man. Your failures are not the final word. The failures of this nation and any other nation in this world are not the final word. The final word belongs to God. The second good news about the new creation, we see that this, this covenant that God makes is not simply with humanity, but is with all of creation. So it encompasses not just us as individuals, but all of creation. We often pit individual salvation against cosmic salvation as if they weren't something held together by God. They are not competing concepts. They are entwined. Individual salvation is integral to cosmic salvation. God cares for all of creation. And that means that we can... We can go out into the world and care about all of creation. It's not always a simple and straightforward way of applying uh, Scripture. We don't always understand exactly how we should care or what we should do. But we should be stewards of the good and the beautiful and the true. And that is going to be complicated. And we are going to have disagreements and we are going to have to work together through that as a community. The other thing that we see here is that God gives us a sign of his new creation to remind us of the hope that we have. 
That's in verse 12. He gives the sign of the covenant as he hangs his bow in the air. And we have a sign of the new covenant here before us today. God reminds us as he remembers himself and moves toward us. He brings his judgment to a hopeful conclusion as he hangs his bow up saying, my wrath is now giving way to hope of a new creation. And so he does so in Christ Jesus with the sign that stands here before us. Just as Noah and Christ were brought through God's judgment, so you will come through God's judgment. You will stand on the final day in judgment and know that you are in Christ and that you are saved. Your work, your parenting, your grades, your schooling, all of that is part of God's new creation. Not necessarily that all of those things will be brought into the new creation, but in this way. That obedience does not earn our salvation, but it is a way to enjoy God's creation and covenant blessings. So that as we go out into the world, the fruit of God's work in our life is manifested through what we do in the here and the now. It is earthy. From Matthew chapter 24, uh, verses 38 through 39, no need to turn there. Um, it's just going to be a short reading. God's rep- uh, Christ references back to the days of Noah, and he says this, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Here's the key part. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like that child saved on the beach, God's new creation now overlaps with this present evil age. The new creation came in Christ, and it's being worked out in us now. And yet, we also undergo the judgments of the fall through death and disease And we experience the anxieties of this present age. And yet there is hope and there is peace to be found in Christ. As you experience all of the signs of judgment, of sin. As you experience poverty or illness or wayward wayward children. Broken families. Mockery in school because of your faith. You can know that divine wrath has given way to peace. And that these moments are now part of God's redemptive story. At work in this world of sin, there is a gracious postponement of judgment. But there is also a kingdom of grace that is, work, that is encompassing every people, every nation, and eventually all of creation. As we come to the end, I want to leave you with this question. Are you certain that God's wrath has given way to peace through Christ? If you are not certain of that, I would invite you to pray, to read scripture. To come into this community and to discuss this with one another. 
so that the Holy Spirit can work in your heart, bringing that, insur- that assurance. And I want you to know that is something you can have. There will be times of frailty, times of questioning, times of doubt, but there can be an abiding assurance. Adna Pishtim had many gods. And we think we've progressed past that. If you ask anyone today, do they have many gods? They would tell you no. We haven't progressed past the service of many gods. We call our gods by different names. We call them the Ark of History. We call our gods chance and time and money. We call our gods nature or science or whatever it is that is in your heart that you are promoting above God. And we need to recognize that God is calling us to reject this myth of progress so that we can see the deep spiritual pathology that abides in us. We need to recognize that when God invites us to salvation, He does not invite us into a meritocracy. He does not invite us to build a name for ourselves. He does not invite us to save ourselves. So the question then becomes, how then should we live? And I can't help to think of that question but to think of Ruby Bridges. She was a young black girl in second grade during segregation. And she became the only white girl, or the only black girl at an all-white school in Louisiana. And every morning, Ruby Bridges would walk through a crowd of jeering white people into her class that was empty because no one else was sending their kids. And one morning as she walked to class, she walked up the steps and turned to face that crowd of jeering people. And her teacher saw her begin to speak. And when Ruby came into the classroom, her teacher asked her, Ruby, what were you saying to those people? And Ruby said, I wasn't saying anything to them. And she said, no, no, I I saw you speaking. And she goes, oh. No, every morning as I walk to school, before I get to that crowd, I stop to pray. I pray for them. I forgot to do that this morning. And so as, as I came to the top of the steps, I turned and I prayed for them. Why is this story applicable? You see, this is why Ruby Bridges saw the cultural tide. She saw the evil of the world. And she didn't take the attitude of it's us versus them. Her attitude was it is an us for them. And she knew that to maintain that attitude required a reliance on God. And so she turned in prayer to God. Few of us will experience... Well, that little girl, no older than my oldest son, experience. But whatever suffering, whatever abuse, whatever mockery we find ourselves undergoing, we can know that our story is caught up into God's story, and that there is redemption.